Hello everyone and welcome back to the Argonauta podcast. I am Alessandro and today we're here with my great friend Gavin Hurley. He's an American guy from New York, Buffalo. And uh, yeah, today we'll be talking about some of the questions I have about USA and some of the things that are going on right now, which are a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to have him here. Hello, man. How are you? I'm good. Hey, thanks for having me on this. I, you know, I'm honored to be a part of this podcast. It's, it's, uh, I've been following it from the beginning and it's just like, it's, a, it's just a really cool venture that you're doing. So I appreciate you having thanks, me on. Man. Okay. Yeah. So we basically met uh, during my year in Belgium and uh, he was doing a year in exchange. And so he had the chance to, to like get to know deeply the, the European culture, education, politics, hanging out with people parties everything so i think it's uh, it's going to be a great point of view so let's start with uh, your experience in belgium when was it and uh, how was it so i was on exchange in belgium for the years like 2016 to 2017 like the summer 2016 to summer 2017 i went through afs american field yeah. service i don't know it's just one of the programs but uh So they had me go through the school system in, in Belgium. I had chosen French-speaking Belgium as my area to live in. So I ended up going to a French school. I knew no French coming in, so it was completely new to me. That was definitely a bit difficult in the beginning in regards to school, kind of getting around. Luckily, you and I, we, we, we lived in the Brussels area, and as it's a center for the international community with the UN and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot of uh, English speakers and English context around the area. So it made it a little easier to get around, but uh, it was definitely a, a, a huge, huge culture shift, language shift, learning experience. And uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a bit of an adjustment period, but it was, it was a really formative part of my life. First of all, I want to talk about the, um, the parting side. Let's start like uh slowly and, <laughs> and lightly. I want to ask you, what are the main differences in regards to hanging out with friends? What do you guys usually do on weekends? Let's talk about uh, pre-COVID uh, situation, because <laughs> uh, right now it's, uh, it's a bit uh, unsocial for everybody. But, uh, but yeah, just tell me, how, how does it work over there? Yeah, I mean, so the, especially in college, the, so we have, you know, uh, like Greek fraternities and they're like stereotypical imagination of comes to oh, yeah, college and um, yeah so you know you're, you're in a you're in a basement you have to have what, what we call frat shoes because the basements and frats are so disgusting and so dirty and muddy that you will come out of that party with your shoes just completely destroyed so you, you, you have to have a first of all you have to have a special pair of shoes that you don't mind getting really messed up and dirty we Especially going to frat parties, you have to pregame because oftentimes either the alcohol there at the frat parties <laughs> is just really weak beer or it's punch, which is like a, a, a mix of any kind of vodka and some sort of... I remember fruit. in like uh, movies, <laughs> the cool guy just pouring vodka in, into the punch in the... <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it's, very, it's a very big stereotype. It's, it's, it's messed up, but one of the things you have to watch out for is sometimes the punch is spiked uh, Jesus. with drugs. <laughs> Xanax is a personal favorite of fraternities because it's like when you mix Xanax with alcohol, you just really get, you get really like slow and like every, the, the world starts like go, looking like, <laughs> well, like a picture. Well, I don't know directly, but I can imagine. I, I, yeah, no, I, I, I had the luck of never experiencing Xanax-laced punch, but so it's, it's kind of the stuff that you have to watch out for that. But uh, I've heard plenty of stories where yeah. you know, people are like, the fuck? I tried it, the, the, the stereotypical frat experience. But the thing is, if you get into that, it's a very, you either have to know somebody or you have to be in a frat and it's an entire lifestyle you know, when it comes to college. So you, you have to like dedicate so much of your time, so much of your money. I mean, you wow. have to pay to be in a frat. So and, it's, it's, it's yeah. kind of like a club, right? Yeah, kind of. It's it's like, uh, you know, it can be pretty exclusive. Yeah, common expression is five for guys, uh, whereas you pay five bucks if you're a guy to get into a frat house because, and they, yeah, they yeah, let yeah. the girls we have in this, for free. Yeah, we have this too. And in the in the discos, like, yeah. it's like legal and, and, uh-huh. and all. But uh, yeah, I guess that uh, mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. girls in your party is always cool. So yeah, right. Got to keep the ratio. <laughs> exactly. 
so yeah, it's it's a it's a manding lifestyle to be sure. So you know, I, I tried it out for a year, but it wasn't really my thing, especially with my major. I'm in architecture, so that takes up a lot of my time, and I just I couldn't balance the two. Do you think that the the frat lifestyle gets you out of focus with your career, and then is I mean, you risk to like maybe fail some of your exams or stuff like that, or there's there's usually a, a good balance. I, I definitely do think that it, it takes you out of it. There's this stereotype that a lot of guys who are in frats are business majors or whatever, because being a business major isn't necessarily as demanding as some of the other majors, and you can dedicate more of your time to the frat. Like this, this is like if you're in a frat, and I've I've heard plenty of stories of people who are not in frats who know who like know people in frats and are able to balance that they're able to get in to these parties because they know people and stuff like that but it's definitely something that you have to you have to spend time evolving and taking care of in order for you to be able to have that kind of experience yeah got it got it i was uh, listening about um an experience of a girl in a usa college mm-hmm. and uh she talked about the fact that uh, you guys are just living into the college and not the the outside world so you you sometimes get too much into it and then uh, i think that it could be the cause that uh, stuff like frats are so popular and uh, taken seriously because yeah it's, it's just your life your day your night is always there and so yeah i think this uh, this is a big difference from the italian universities i mean there's campuses here but uh, it's not as close still live the city and uh yeah as you know we we hang out a lot in like in bars or yeah we just go outside have a walk get a couple drinks and then have fun so i think it's uh it's usually best to split the college life and uh the normal life yeah no that's that's definitely true college is its own entirely different world and it's it's not like anything that you're ever going to experience outside of it's like your last hurrah before you enter the workforce and you know you start a nine to five and all that kind of stuff not not to make college sound especially in terms of the partying like there's only one track that you can go you know obviously i i found my own way i would once i reached my second year you know i started partying more with my friends and casual thing but never really went out to bars we never really experienced the city we had parties it would often be at someone's house or something like that it was a very contained atmosphere do you think that people that deep inside know that they're going to be doing a nine to five job uh just take uh college as their like last years of like real life and then uh, just use them to party as mm-hmm. hard no, as you can and you know i don't know how much difference there is between the your you know european culture and american culture with this but there's this huge push among academia and culturally that uh, especially now if you don't go to college uh, that you're not going to be able to make something of yourself you're not going to be able to get ahead in life and because of this there's a lot of like trade jobs in the states that can make decent money at that you can be successful in that sort of have have definitely gone to the wayside in terms of cultural importance and that the need is greater at the point because of this idea that if you graduate high school then you should immediately go to college and find a skill and i think it's tough because you're asking a 17 18 year old kid to decide what they want to do with the rest of their life in a system that charges exorbitant amounts of money and the stakes are a lot higher especially for people who don't necessarily have the money to explore their freedom in terms of what they want to do because you switch your major oftentimes you have to start away back at the beginning or you end up adding years on to your college and that's that's a lot of money in the states so it's 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 a tough it's a really really tough system i think that the biggest advantage that we have here in Europe is that we can get extremely cheap uh, education. So don't have things that as uh, like a gap year. I mean, of course, there there's some people that take a gap year to just uh, maybe work on tra- or travel a bit and uh, just figure out what they want to do. But it's not as popular and as needed. And I think it's because, of course, there's a lot of pressure because uh, the thing you study at university is pretty much the thing you're going to be working with for the rest of your life probably so it's uh it's very it's a very important choice 
but uh, I think that we have a, a way less pressure because it's super common for people to just change the faculty because, uh, you know, sometimes you can get some exams accepted so you don't have to start from the, from the beginning and then uh, it's not that expensive, especially. One thing that been floated for a while now is the idea of forgiving student debt because student debt in the United States is oh yeah ridiculous i mean the average amount of money that someone owes to either the federal government or a private entity in loans coming out of college is can be completely debilitating to your ability to take that next step constantly have this this debt that's following you around 10 20 30 years of your life that you're still paying off and especially if you have like an unsubsidized loan that um, you have to pay interest on and there's been yeah, then there, there's crazy. certain loans that students get that are subsidized so that they don't have to pay interest on while they're still getting an education. But it's it's definitely like this, this weight that sort of you're, you're pressured to be successful and do something with what you gain because of that financial burden. Yeah, I think that everyone is uh, a lot more pressed to, to just be more successful and uh, to earn a lot of money just because of this uh, huge debt that they have. So, so yeah, that uh, sounds like a very stressing yeah. situation. For sure. <laughs> yeah, hence the, hence the nine to five stuff. Also, I think that this could be one of the main reasons of the American dream being born because uh, you, you feel like you have to escape the routine of the nine to five job, the debt, and then, uh, yeah, you guys feel just pressured to just seek some kind of fortune and uh, this is what for example i see from a, from a european point of view but maybe sometimes by ignoring the things that caused it we we see america as a, as a great land of opportunity of course where if you are talented you 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 can make it where people are going to be are going to treat you well if you if you made it and uh, yeah well for example here in italy people tend to be very jealous for example, if, if you see a Ferrari in the streets in, uh, in L.A., you're, you're waiting to cross the road, right? You, you just see the Ferrari, you see a nice guy, uh, a nice looking guy in it. And you're like, damn, this guy made it. This guy is a, is a nice guy. While if this exact thing happens like in Rome, you just think, oh, my God, like his parents have to be so rich. He, he didn't work like for a single hour. I'm so sure. <laughs> so, yeah. So we have this kind of mentality that uh, I hate, to be honest. And uh, even sometimes it happens for like exams or stuff like that. There's always some little veil of uh, jealousy that I think is completely cultural and uh, useless. So, so yeah, this is one of the things that um, I like about America, there's, for example. There's this saying that's been floating around in my head this whole time we've been having this conversation, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. If you have the will to succeed, you can succeed. And I think because of that, a lot of, the culture of America is the very individualist. If, if you fail, it's your fault. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't put in the time and the effort. And I think that it, it marginalizes a lot of the, the need that people, like the basic need that people have. And it, it, it makes this cultural idea that if you can't succeed by yourself, why should anybody help you do that? And I think it's, it's, it's kind of toxic. It, it doesn't create a society that is helping each other. It's creating a society that says, well, I made it. Why can't you? Washes away a lot of personal difficulties, whether they're financial or personal, whether or not you do well at a certain thing or not. And it just, yeah, it, it, it makes it very difficult to feel like you are part of a group unless you work very hard and you become individually successful at that thing that makes you a part of that group. Wow, that's very interesting. I think that uh, in one side, this is very good because um, in America, you have the, the impression you think you can make it, you can actually make it. While, for example, in, in Italy, it's, uh, I mean, it's not quite the same because, uh, you know, you, you just hope to get a nice job and then uh, have uh, enough holidays, have a nice family, buy a house eventually, a nice car, and then you're good. People rarely are as ambitious as American people. Because I think that uh, in the in the USA culture, you're very pushed to like achieve your dreams and work super hard to get this. But uh, on in the other hand, it's uh, it can be very stressing and um, hard for the maybe regular people that just want to to just get the job they want, not necessarily make a lot of money, have a family, have a nice group of friends, and uh, yeah, this this could be the 
one of the causes this is more difficult to achieve in America. So do you think that this uh, individualistic culture and uh, way of doing things and achieving dreams has translated into the politics as well? Yeah, you see it in the policy and the governmental approach of the two-party system, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Even in politics, there's this very like, you're either a part of this group or you're a part of this group or you're not a part of it at all. Like if you don't succeed in this way, then can't can't get anywhere in regards to the specific political groups. I think that um, the, the Republican or conservative leaning part of the American culture is still very attached to this individualistic American dream. It's supposed to be about small government, so no handouts, no help, not as much regulation. And there are good things that come with that, lowering taxes, stuff like that. But by doing that, you make it harder for the people who need that help. There's people who don't have the opportunities that you know are supposed to be a part of the stereotypical American culture of going to college, getting an education. And I feel like a lot of the times in conservative thought that those people get left behind because they can't necessarily fend for themselves or they, they don't have the resources or the opportunity to do so. I think the liberal or democratic side of it, you know, left-leaning side of it is trying to balance that out. If you, if you want to look for a specific example, the financial aid in regards to COVID relief. Uh, recently, yeah. they... Senate and the represent the House of Representatives have been going back and forth on this two trillion dollar COVID relief package, and part of it is the pandemic relief aid, financial aid, which at the beginning pandemic people were getting six hundred dollars a week in, in unemployment benefits. It's a, a stimulus package where the family got you know, like one thousand two hundred bucks, and as time has gone on, that number has decreased and in this most recent package. Now the number is down from 600 to 300. And so, yeah, there's definitely this like idea that people should not rely on the government to get by, uh, no matter what their circumstances. So definitely believe that that sort of American dream individualistic aspect is very, very tied to governmental policies and the parties that determine them. Um, how's COVID in, in the uh, USA? Actually, it's rates are going down, and that's due a lot in large part to the vaccine. But on the other side of it, there's definitely this tiredness of quote unquote dealing with aspects of, yeah. of, of uh, dealing with COVID. You know, people are getting tired of quarantining and playing it safe and maintaining small pods of people that they interact with on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a fatigue. And part of me worries that that fatigue is going to undo a lot of things that, you know, the, the vaccine, it's, it's like the vaccine is here. It's not to everybody, but it's being released. But just because it's being released does not mean that it's a time to relax our safety standards. Yeah, exactly. If anything, it's a time to make sure that they maintain because anyone who gets sick, who has, who, who dies, who has, uh, you know, lasting medical effects because of getting sick at this point, it's, it's pointless, completely nonsensical that that still has to happen or that should still be happening because people are tired or they think that, you know, the end is nigh, the end is coming in terms of having to deal with it because the vaccine has, has it's been released to, uh, I think, a couple of tens of millions of people have gotten it so far. Last I heard was like 30, 40, 50. How are you, how are you organizing uh, with the vaccine? Like who you're giving the, the vaccine to? Yeah. Like, do you have any order maybe? Because I hear is to like yeah. old people mm -hmm. and uh, teachers and people that work in the, you know, mm -hmm. the healthcare system. And yeah, so I think initially it was uh, frontline workers, teachers, uh, anyone in the medical field who was dealing with patients on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the second wave was for older people. And I think we're still in that range of, of time. I think re the most recent change was uh, anyone with pre-existing conditions can now get uh, the vaccine. So 
before I didn't know anyone who got the vaccine besides like my parents. And now a couple of my friends have gotten it, which is, oh. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hopeful step. And, you know, the, the, the hope is that eventually everyone will be vaccinated by sometime in the summer, August, somewhere around there. Wow. But, uh, it, That's very optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Biden said, you know, 100 million vaccines in the uh, first 100 days of office. And, you know, I don't know how realistic that is, especially now with the release of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the third one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reaching a large vaccinated audience is definitely possible by the end of the summer. That's great. Yeah, I think that for the vaccine, as, as for the cases, the, the time where you, you just start to think that uh, something is uh, influent is, uh, is when you just experience it in your like, inner circle. Because, circle. Uh, like, for example, during the first wave of cases in Italy, even though like, we were the worst in the world, every country was supporting us, uh, I didn't know anybody that got COVID, you know? But then in the second wave, the numbers were way higher and uh, now pretty much everyone knows somebody that got COVID or, you know, got vaccinated as well. Uh, it's a nice way of impacting uh, yourself to, to like to the reality because uh, often you just see the data on the internet and uh, you, you just think that it doesn't concern you. But then when, 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 it's, a when it's a relative, uh, it's, uh -huh. another, it's another story. So how do you think that the COVID situation has been used in, uh, in the election? Like what, what were the, um, maybe the, the initiatives from Biden and from Trump? What was the approach? Well, in terms of political electability during the debates and during the time leading up to the election, I think that kept up his message that COVID's going away, COVID's almost gone. We're going to release the vaccine in a couple of weeks and then it would be, you know, a month down the road and we're going to release the vaccine in a couple of weeks. And, and, and it was just this constant message of everything's fine. Uh, we, want, we, we want to return the economy back to normal. We want to reopen schools, sort of uh, washing away what had already occurred and his handling the virus, which was not great at any level. And I think that that's what Biden focused on was that, okay, look, this is the way that Trump handled the virus. It was poor, it was unscientific, it was dangerous for the American people. And this is how I want to handle it going forward. And I want to use a scientific approach. I want to help people realize, A, how dangerous this is, B, that I can help them financially and otherwise. And um, I think that that's a major reason why Biden was so supportive is because he offered a, I, I would say, a more reasoned approach to, to dealing with it, a, a more realistic approach of accepting the way things were and moving forward in a positive manner about how it could be dealt with. Whereas Trump was a, a much more living in his own kind of world about how he was handling it and how it was going. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, how do you think COVID has changed the elections in terms of uh, voting, of course, and uh, like approach to voting and uh, maybe, you know, the elections got more attention. So, than you usual. know, there was this big push by Democratic Party to encourage mail-in voting and contactless, any, any way to have contact voting to reduce the risk of spread, especially with the variety of age and other factors that would have been impacted that that were impacted by covid uh, in regards to being able to vote and you know this was something i think that trump wanted to do or wanted to to to, to devalue or illegitimize because it would increase his chances due to the fact of his messaging being everything's fine you know we're doing okay and with a large majority of the republican or conservative population believing that everything was fine. I think he knew that in-person voting in regards to the Republican Party or Republican voting would be heightened. And because of the messaging done by the Democratic Party about mail-in voting, that it would be a way for him to keep the message, keep, keep it about himself. And, you know, obviously that, that came to fruition for, for months, for weeks leading up to the actual voting. He delegitimized mail-in voting. 
he said that people, the Democratic Party was going to try to steal votes by mailing in votes from people who were dead, who didn't exist. It was their dogs, all this kind of stuff. And no. Yeah, he no. didn't, and, he didn't and, really and, accept and, the results. You know, he was like, oh, you know, this many votes showed up at 3 a.m. on election night. Like this was clearly illegal when the fact of the matter is that voting, like polling places report their votes as part of a whole. So they, they count a bunch of votes and then they say, okay, this many people voted this way or that, you know? So it, it, it wasn't like a, oh, as every vote is counted, it's tallied or it's announced. It's you tally a certain number of votes. And if it's mail-in votes, then you're going to do them all as a whole or as a large group, and then you're going to announce them. And, and this is sort of his way of saying, see, clearly they're cheating when it wasn't, that in at, at all in, in any sort of reality and yeah, i mean i gotta i gotta i gotta hand it to him it was kind of a genius move to like first sow this distrust related to a, the specifically the democratic party and then try to illegitimize those votes as a result of that work that he put in to delegitimize that aspect like you know the mail-in aspect of voting and yeah, because because it was coherent with the the campaign of uh, don't yeah. don't take yes. the COVID too seriously. It's not that big of a deal. Plus, it gave him a, a way of uh, complaining about the results afterwards. Yeah, yeah I, I, I got a hand. Yeah, it was but, pretty uh, smart. <laughs> it, it definitely it's kind of terrifying at the same time that he was able to do something like this. Be with his he took the the power of his influence and applied it to something. And because of his backing as a Republican candidate, he was able to use the Republican Party as a springboard, as a legitimate springboard for all of these claims. And you know, having the power of a political party in the United States, it's a significant thing. And I think that Republicans have been struggling as a political party since Reagan. Their past couple of presidents, George H.W. Bush, George Bush, and now Trump, in the past 20 years have had significant issues. And the, the Republican Party latched onto Trump because he was this cult of personality, because he inspired so many people. And I don't think that they cared how he inspired them. They only cared that they were getting attention and that they were getting power and, and that they were able to do something with it. So regardless of their own moral standards, their ability to have a voice, to have power in a government that they had been struggling to do so for, especially with Obama having two terms and all of this, they, they, I, I think that they felt scared that they weren't going to be able to influence the way that the government was leaning without someone who inspired a lot of people, which Trump was, although it wasn't the kind of inspiration that you necessarily want to attach yourself to. So people like Ted Cruz, people like Mitch McConnell, using Trump as a way to further their own means or further their party's means, while it aided them at the time, I think that it's going to hurt them in the long run for a longer time. Yeah, so so you're basically saying mm -hmm. that they both used themselves, one to get uh, you know in a in a nice political situation and one to get yeah. in a nice influential situation. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, do you think Trump is still influencing oh, lots of people? There, right there, there's been multiple cases while he was president during primaries during 2018 and even 2020, where all it would take was a tweet from him about a particular candidate and their, their polls would go up. And there's this statistic that like, I don't know, 72, 73 million people voted for Trump. And that's the most of any incumbent president ever. Wow. And Biden got 76 or 78 million votes. That's the most of any candidate ever. Any, anyone who has ever run for president has never gotten that many votes, regardless of being incumbent or a nominee so i think that yeah i think that trump still has a lot of influence even now even without his 
tweeting machine. He uh, he still has a lot of sway within the Republican Party about who becomes influential, who becomes successful. And I think it's it's definitely going to be a choice within the Republican Party, within the remaining powerful members of whether or not they want to piggyback off that, continue to piggyback off that and use that influence as a way to stay their own political power or uh, whether they want to find their own way now that they saw what president like Trump attaching himself to the Republican Party did for them, both positively and negatively. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think that he still has a lot of power. Still a question of whether or not he's going to run in 2024. And even without Trump himself, his family, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka, all of these people who gained the platform because of his presidency definitely have an opportunity to continue that legacy. Maybe, maybe in, a, in a more moderate way. I don't even know, man. Because Donald Trump Jr. says some heinous stuff on par with his dad. And I, I think that he is using his dad's base as, as a way to continue his dad's legacy with or without. Got it. Yeah, I think that if uh, in the future there's one person who's going to create his own party, that person is definitely Trump. So yep. yeah. mm-hmm. we will hear a lot about him still and uh, just uh, still concerning Trump I wanted to talk about the capital assault okay I think I feel that this was a, a very important historical moment for uh, the USA and uh, for the entire world to be honest because um, a America had to face a reality that was uh, maybe covered for a lot of time that it's the way people are attached to Trump and his ideas, and B, it was a, a very bad show-off for democracy in, in the world. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think the capital assault impacted the image that we Europeans have about America and like the world in general, and uh, how it has impacted Americans? Now, this, this is something that I, I would love to also get your perspective on, because obviously there was a lot of context within the United States of what the riot meant and the imagery of it. The U.S. has spent the better part of since World War II as a world power attempting to democratize certain countries, the Middle East, or anywhere that the U.S. in the past 70 years, 60, 70 years has tried to prop up democratic leaders and what came before that in terms of those countries' internal struggles and what that looked like. And I think that the Capitol riot was a sort of a a wake-up call to the United States of like, this can happen here. We, We can have civil unrest here. It's not limited to places that we are, quote unquote, trying to help or trying to fix. This is a real problem. Domestic terrorism is responsible for more deaths in the United States than any other kind. Wow. It's crazy, but it's it's true. And I think that this is the most extreme example we've had so far, the most public example we've had so far of that being true. So I think that fear is a, is a, a big theme in the United States right now, there's fear from both sides. There's fear from the Democratic side in relation to, or the the liberal side in relation to seeing what happened in the past four years. And I think that that came out in the Black Lives Matter protest movement. And there's fear from the conservative or Republican side that they're not being heard, they're not being listened to. The Capitol riot was their their moment of reaction. And I think that the other problem that sort of attached itself to the Republican Party is this culture of conspiracy and disbelief that Trump had tightened for his presidency, his inability to put down white supremacy, especially during the the debates, the reference to the Proud Boys 
in reference to QAnon and their conspiracy theories that have, I think, I think definitely propped up the distrust of the political system and why Trump was so powerful was because he was considered an outsider, which isn't the case at all. He is exactly what the rest of the political system grew up as and I think still continues to be. So it was just it was kind of odd for me that they attached themselves to Trump, that these conspiracy theorists said, oh, Trump is the way forward. He is draining the swamp. He is including a voice of reason for the everyday American. He's, he, he never was. But the fact that these groups were able to attach themselves to this idea of political distrust and that this was their way of, of voicing that, there, there was a lot of fear on both sides. There was fear from the Democratic and liberal side that like, how can we deal with this? How can we make them see that they put their trust in a man who doesn't actually care about them, that a political system can work. And just because it's changing, just because it's adapting its values to other people doesn't mean that it's leaving you behind. Yeah. And I, th- I think that when I, when I personally watched the, the, the news coverage of the riots, I was, I was afraid. I was afraid that they set up a noose in front of the Capitol and they got this close to getting to Nancy Pelosi, to getting to Pence, to Vice President Pence, who through the entire Trump administration was this political backboard, this legitimate political backboard for Trump. And then as soon as he expressed his unwillingness to, because Trump said that Pence has the power to stop the electoral vote count, which he didn't. He didn't have that power. He was literally only in that electoral vote to say the this many people voted this way, this many people voted this way. He couldn't stop it. But the fact that Trump had such a loyal base and that they believed him no matter what meant that Pence, who was this solid backboard for Trump the entire time, in the last couple of days of his presidency, the fact that he turned around on him and stood up for the political system meant that he was going to be hanged. And that that sort of backlash, that sort of, it's, it's terrifying that something can turn on a dime so quickly based on one man's opinion, not even fact, opinion, and create this culture of fear or, or use this culture of fear as a way to influence politics. So yeah, I think fear, fear is a lot on both sides. There's a lot of fear on both sides and it's coming out in different ways. And it just, it doesn't show, doesn't play well for America's ability to have a say in the rest of the world. I think we, we spent 60 years trying to play political God with a lot of countries that we thought, okay, they need help. They need to change. We can do that. And I'm not suggesting that we need to put America first or whatever. I just think that the culture that Trump established put a lot of doubt in the international community of America being able to keep itself together. It it was definitely a scary moment for democracy that something like this could be in, in Italy, we, we had the, the Capitol riots in the news, and it was crazy. Just people going inside the Capitol and uh, taking pictures, like sitting at the, the desks. It was uh, unreal. And uh, it felt like uh, you guys had, uh, had some trouble going on, to be honest. Yeah, like this can happen to you too. We we always have had, had this idea of uh, America being like so solid and uh, mm-hmm. like sure about the its principles and uh, yeah this was a, a very I think a humbling moment for uh, for the USA and uh, I really hope you guys <laughs> don't do this again <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, I think it was uh, super interesting and uh, an incredible historical moment that will be studied in the, in the books. So I am, in a way, glad to, to have lived to, to witness it. 
Okay, so this was the, the year of the riots in America because of uh, Black Lives Matter too. You guys had a lot of uh, riots going on while COVID was spreading. We were like, oh my God, there's COVID and these guys are rioting. Come on. And um, yeah, I, I would love to hear more about that. Of course, George Floyd's death was uh, the trigger. But do you think this problem is an old problem in, in America or one that got worse in, in the last years? I think it's been around for a long time. Historically, that's been confirmed. There have been protests throughout the years, I think especially since the 60s, even with the passing of the Civil Rights Act in the US, the violence against the Black community has been ongoing. I, I, I do think that recently with the advent of everyone being able to film something and show it to a wider audience, it doesn't necessarily mean that the problem is starting now. It means that the problem is being more widely yeah, shown. Yeah, so more, more people are aware of it. Mm -hmm, exactly. And I think that this was a peak of that. The reaction this time, I mean, this was the, I think, I think this was reported as like the largest protest in maybe world history because of the fact that even though it started in the US, it ended up amplifying to, I think it was like 60 countries had protests as a result of the George Floyd death and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it shows that there is a real issue with racial equity and just the, the lack of voice that minorities have for themselves, regardless of place. You can take one side or the other about the protests turning violent and all that. Statistically, three or 7% of all of the protests for Black Lives Matter in the United States were violent. So 93 to 97% of the protests were peaceful. There has always been this culture of authority in the United States. And I think that Black voices have been ignored and silenced for a majority of American history. This was a breaking point. This was, if they're not going to listen to us politically, if we can't get a foot in the door that way, we have to make them listen somehow. And this was that response. I think it brought about a lot of positive change on an individualistic level, as well as regulatory. Uh, on Instagram, pretty much every day during the summer, I would see a post on the struggle that Black people and Black communities have to go through in order to just live or be successful and reasons why they can't or reasons why they are silenced and how that goes about. The, the issue of systemic racism in American politics, it's very cemented. I think it was unfortunate that the conservative side or anyone who had issue with the protests put it down to it being bad thing because of the violence, because of burning police stations, stuff like that. It's difficult to, to, to try to get everybody on the same page when there are facets that create issues like the protests becoming violent and people latching onto that. But I do think that There, there need something needs to change if it's if it gets to this point. And do you think that Biden now can do something uh, useful to kind of resolve this situation? It's tough because Biden is very politically moderate in the middle. His message was, I want to bring people together to try to solve this together. But you even see within the COVID relief bill that was just passed. It was completely partisan. Everyone voted along party lines. Still, no one wants to listen. And again, go, you know, circling back to the, the fear anecdote, that fear is still impacting a lot of people's decisions, especially on the conservative or Republican side of the aisle. That's a tough thing to overcome. You can't calm fear when you're trying to make things or push things to the side that Uh, the people who are fearful don't want it to go to, even incrementally. And I think that that's a problem that Biden as a singular entity isn't going to be able to solve. I think he's done a great job 
of creating a calmer environment for things to occur in. But I don't, I don't know, I don't think that he has the ability to make things so that policy reflects what a majority of Americans, because there is such a divide at this point. Got it, got it. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Biden's um, campaign was all about fixing the things that were not okay in America and uh, recovering. His job now is to slowly healing the wounds. And uh, so this, I think this was what his campaign was about and uh, what his role is going to be about. Um, I'm also curious about minorities in America. I know that there's a lot of immigrants in America and uh, I wanted to ask you how do they integrate themselves in the society if it's more difficult for them, if it takes longer. And uh, also I, I'd love to, to hear a comparison with uh, your own experience as being an, a foreigner in, uh, in another country, another continent. So yeah, what was your experience? Did you have any different perspective about uh, immigrants in America when you came back, stuff like that? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a really, really small town. Total population is like 4,000 people, something like that. Very, very small. I didn't really have a grasp on the context of immigrant struggles or you know, what they had to go through to have a place in American society or any society. One of the things about going on exchange was that I got a glimpse internationally of, of what, that, what that meant. When I would go into to Brussels, taking the train, you know, oftentimes in Gare Centrale, there would be homeless refugees and stuff like that. That was my first experience of ever seeing anything like that firsthand. I actually, I had an experience in my French learning class. So I, I had a, a, a class outside of school to help me learn French. And one of the... Yeah, I went, I went, I went through these as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the one of the classmates, I think his name was uh, Rami, something like that. One time he was talking to me and Leo, one of our friends, during the class, and he was telling us his experience about escaping the civil war in, in Syria and hardships that he dealt with trying to get to a place of safety and a place where he could get an education. That was that was definitely formative for me, uh, learning that that kind of struggle was something that someone had to go through to be safe. So then coming back to the United States after that, I definitely had a had a perspective at that point. It was definitely one of wanting people who were dealing with struggles, who were dealing with hardships, trying to escape that, going through asylum or just immigrating to the country. I wanted them to be able to feel safe through the Trump administration with his policies on immigration, his banning, you know, people from Muslim countries from coming to the United States. It just, it felt very tone deaf. It was like, this is mine. You can't have it. And that seemed very antithetical, very opposite of what a America was founded on, a melting pot country of, of immigrants. And why was now the time that we were turning our backs? Yeah. So you think that this experience abroad gave you a lot more empathy for immigrants? Of course, it was not your fault, but, uh, but definitely there's many people that just live in a very small town and they just um, have a, a very vague idea about the, the immigrants, the, the homeless people and uh, of these minorities that are struggling a lot and, uh, of course, need to be heard. And, uh, yeah, I think this is definitely one of the pros of uh, going abroad for a, for a period of time. Yeah, have a broader perspective about things. Let's focus a bit more into your exchange. You were personally... My, the first American guy I met in my life. Oh, yeah? yeah, directly. So, so yeah, you have this uh, award. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I think you guys are, at first glance, you guys were so different from us. For example, the way of thinking, the way you approached things, like school, getting to know new people. It was all different and uh, it was just more. I'm curious about how did you feel about, about Belgian people 
And if you could uh, recognize pattern in the behavior of certain uh, cultures, like for example, you know, Latinos or European guys, Mediterranean people, Asian people. Well, specifically speaking to, to Belgium, one thing that I learned about as I, as I lived there was this cultural and political divide between the Dutch half of Belgium and the French half of Belgium and how that impacted governmental issues, governmental shutdowns, stuff like that, because of inability to agree. But on a more personal level, I spent a lot of time interacting with the other exchange students, as well as like you, people from different countries who were living in Belgium at the time, for various reasons. And just interacting with those different cultures was sort of eye-opening to like, okay, not everybody has that nine to five, not every, and, and that the mentality that comes along with that, like specifically speaking to some of my Latino or Spanish speaking friends, they had a, a much more like easygoing approach to life. I appreciated that perspective just because the, the hardworking American ideal was something that I don't, you know, is the only thing that I'd really ever experienced. I think the other thing was that I, specifically speaking to the, people that I met like you and the other people on exchange was that uh, I, th I think that I got a very specific perspective because we were all there and we were all very open to hearing and discussing and, and, and learning about other people. That was, I appreciated that a lot because in just learning about other people's perspectives can greatly impact yours. One of the things that struck me as well was I was an American. I only had a solid understanding of English. My host family, everyone in my host family spoke two to three languages. Everyone I met on an exchange level spoke one to two to three languages. And I don't know, I, I kind of had a hard time reconciling that with myself in that everyone else seemed like they had a broader perspective on on the world because of their ability to to talk to different people regardless of because they were able to break down those language barriers and i mean if, if i if you hadn't been able to speak english if any of my friends hadn't been able to speak english i would have been completely shut out of that because of my inability to understand. So while I appreciated that everyone, that, that English was such a, a worldwide phenomenon, or a, I guess a requirement in you know other countries uh, to learn that, it, it made me feel like American culture was very isolated. The fact that we don't strive to learn other languages, to learn other cultures, is very limiting. It limits us in our ability to understand the world. So I think that was one thing that I really appreciated. Uh, yeah, I think that this is uh, uh, one of the, the greatest problems that uh, you guys have with your education system is that um, you guys maybe don't give enough importance to, to languages. For example, in Italy, we, we're not super good with languages, I have to be fair, but uh, we have this idea since we're a child that uh, English is super important. Without English, you can't go anywhere. That uh, you have to, to be able to talk English to, to get a job or communicate with people. And I think that uh, you guys just speak English from, from the day you're born. So it's, you don't have this need. But then uh, it's a lot more important than the language per se. But um, it's just an approach to learning uh, like new languages that... Um, gives you the opportunity to comprehend um, a culture in a, in a way deeper way. And uh, yeah, I think uh, this is very important. Okay, so I remember during my first year in, uh, in Belgium that we were chilling in Celtica, our uh, sweet place, the, the legendary Irish pub. And uh, yeah. I remember talking to, a, to a, an American guy, which had uh, some weird hobbies. One was um, to tattoo people with uh, some machine that he made himself, which was not super hygienic, but uh, very creative for sure. And then the second hobby was um, building guns. Huh. And that was uh, very, very weird to me. That was my first like direct approach 
to the gun culture in uh, in the USA. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah. Well, the Second Amendment, being the right to bear arms, is one that is intrinsically ingrained into American culture. I think that it exists because of the very basis on which we built our country, which was revolution against the British and the importance of the everyman being able to defend his home from some adversary, be it foreign or whatever. I think that that continued in the United States because it was so important to our founding. Yeah, gun culture in the United States, I think it's severe. There's more guns in the United States than people. I feel like the culture that evolved around gun ownership and the that idea of individualism in the United States sort of paired and married and, and stayed that way because of the idea that I can defend myself. I don't have to worry about anyone else. I can defend myself. The In, in reference to the regulation behind gun laws in the United States, I think that it's been lax. I don't think that we'll ever be able to approach gun laws in the sense of like some some place like Australia, where they had a certain amount of mass shootings. And then they were like, okay, that's it. Everyone hand in your guns. And it's impossibly hard to own anything beyond like a hunting rifle. Obviously, I can't speak to that. But just from anecdotal stories and stuff like that, that I've heard. I, I think that gun ownership is so married into American culture that you're not going to be able to enforce anything like that. In reference to school shootings and stuff like that that have occurred in the United States because of lax gun laws in terms of background checks and stuff like that, I think that that definitely needs more regulate more attention. But it's difficult because the the NRA, the National Rifle Association, is so politically tied to American government, and they have so much money and so much influence that it is hard to even pass incremental laws. Wow. And that's that's a problem with American politics as a whole, is that if you have a lot of money, if you know people in politics and government, you can influence things. And that's something, you know, I, I, I always talk about how the Koch brothers, who were influential in the American automotive industry, lobbied the government uh, saying, hey, look at this, cars are the way of the future. You should invest in the ability for people to use these cars to get around. Because it's a fact that the United States has the largest train freight railways in the world. The reason for that is because people like the Koch brothers and other lobbyists for the automotive industry advocated for American automotive industry and greatly reduced the amount of funding that the government put into public transportation like trains. And I think that that's to the detriment of of the ability for people to get around easily. But yeah, so it, it, with with gun control, it's the same thing. You have lobbyists like the NRA who have an immense political power and influence and have the ability to derail attempts to regulate things like gun laws, however incremental they may be. And that's that's a political issue. But it, it's it's hard to separate the two, private interest and political interest because of the way that the American government is constructed. Got it, got it. I remember talking about about this with an American guy. We were just simulating a situation where in a room, there's one bad person which has a gun. In this case, good person with a gun can resolve the situation. And my point was, um, but what about if there was no guns? So yeah, I think this is the main perspective uh, division. I was going to ask you if uh, there will be a, like a solution maybe in the future. But uh, as you told me, it's very deep into the American culture and government and uh, private sector. So yeah. Do you think, though, that uh, with the time passing, it will be more regulated? It's, it's difficult to say, honestly. I think this, this is a, uh, a viewpoint of people that something doesn't change until the worst possible thing. You don't address issues until they become issues. With Hurricane Katrina in the 2000s, New Orleans, Louisiana, did not have adequate storm control in terms of flooding and stuff like that. And it destroyed the city. And it was only until after that the federal government and the state government looked into 
the clauses and determine, okay, we didn't have enough preparedness in relation to emergency reaction and getting people to safety in terms of preparing for the potential worst case scenario. And so I think that this also extends to gun control in America. Nothing gets done until the worst possible thing happens. So after every major mass shooting in the United States, there's policy and legislation that is created as a potential bill to pass. But as time goes on, the interest in the issue decreases and the ability for regulation to pass becomes more difficult because people forget that it happened, the next bad thing happens, or the next scandal occurs, and people move on. Got it. It's, uh, it's more like a, a healing approach than a prevention approach. Exactly. I don't know if it's ever going to get so bad as to influence people to demand change at a volume and consistency that something does change. I, I can't tell you that that's going to happen. In my opinion, that would be the only way that something like gun control would receive any sort of significant attention. Got it. I wanted to ask you about um, like the drinking culture as well, because uh, I recently turned 21. So mm -hmm. finally, I can, I can have a beer in America. It was a, it was a very high moment of my life. And uh, I wanted to ask you if this is linked to a particular way of thinking on some stereotypes or culture as well. Why in Belgium you can drink beer at 18 and uh, in, no, 16, I think, actually. Yeah. And in America, you have to wait till you're 21. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was at a, a Carrefour and I bought a bottle of vodka and they didn't even card me. <laughs> didn't even card me. Scientifically, I think that the U.S. regulation of you know, 21 being the age has been linked to the, the human brain develops to a point, And this is the point that we're going to say, okay, this is where it's like, okay, to drink. On the other hand, I think it inspires a culture of rebellion. Yeah. And I, I think that that's very prevalent across all aspects of American culture, is that this idea of rebellion as a teenager against your parent, against society is something that that sort of loopholes around that that regulation fake ids are hugely popular on you know american campuses for wow. college and stuff yeah and it, i think it's because of that regulation and with prohibition in the united states in the 1920s completely outlawing alcohol it was very obvious that that was not a solution there's a lot of issue that society has with like oh i can go serve my country when i'm 18 but I can't legally have a drink until I'm 21. I think that it's going to stay 21 forever. I mean, I don't really see that changing ever, but I think that it inspires this culture of rebellion that circumnavigates the law in alcohol and marijuana. Yeah. I think this uh, applies to weed as well, because um, whenever you can't do something, it's 10 times more appealing. Talking about the, the cars, how's the approach to cars in, in America? When can you drive legally? Like 18? 16, you can get your permit to drive with a parent or guardian for that period of time that you have the permit. In New York State, there was no limit of time before you were able to get your license. If you drove, I think it was like 50 hours you have to drive documented before you can apply for your license. But now, at least in New York State, you have to wait a minimum of six months before you can apply to get your driver's license. So you can be 16 and a half. And drive uh, regularly. Yeah, without, without any supervision or anything like that. That's crazy. We have this permit as well in Italy, but uh, we get it at 18. We then have to do some driving classes with some schools, have an exam, and then we can drive legally. But um, for example, we have to go slower in certain streets. We, we can't drive every car, of course. We can just drive some low power cars and uh, we can't drink at all. While if you have three years of uh, license, you can have beer, stuff like that. Pretty different, but I think it's uh, linked to the fact that, uh, for instance, in Italy or in Europe in general, you have a very solid public transportation system. Well, I want to ask you one last question that I recently asked to uh, my last guest. Of course, you have some European perspective. What do you think America could implement and learn from uh, 
European culture and uh, the other way around? What Europe could uh, learn from America? The thing that immediately jumps to mind is more socialistic tendencies in terms of education and healthcare. Everything is so privatized in American culture. Before the we were talking about how in American education systems and higher education, it costs you $15,000, dollars $60,000 to go to one semester of, of American college. And you were saying it's like $1,500 for the whole thing. Yeah. So definitely in terms of education, healthcare, I mean, it's a mess in the United States. All of this is because of privatized interests, the, the, the want to make money. And yeah, I think that we have an extremely toxic system when it comes to stuff like that. So we could definitely learn, learn lessons from European culture about public aid in, in reference to those specific things. As far as what the European culture could learn from American culture, that's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, this might be a, a case of the grass is always greener on the other side, but uh, it kind of feels like the European mindset on life is fairly smart in terms of what all what all goes around maybe think about the things you missed while you were on exchange oh dude don't make people pay for public bathrooms <laughs> i agree so much i mean yeah, there yeah, were yeah. there were times where i would get off a train i had to pee so bad but i didn't have like 15 cents 25 cents whatever and i just had to like hold it until i would get to celtica Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the mm-hmm. that that's a, a very tough one to to accept for sure. <laughs> okay, man, I am so happy about this call, and uh, I really hope maybe sometime soon to have you back to talk about some other things. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. Like this was this was a great experience. I, I learned a lot from your side of the table as well. So uh, yeah, I really hope that I could come back on at some point. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Then uh, we're out.